All right, well again, welcome uh, to Hope Lower Town. So those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at uh, Lower Town. We've got two other uh, locations, one in downtown Minneapolis and one in Columbia Heights. They're currently just uh, unable to open at this time for various reasons. So we're glad that we have this space that the church owns uh, that's pretty private. So I'm thankful for that. Um, so the fall is probably my favorite time of year, right? I know, isn't today the last day technically of summer? Right, tomorrow is the first day of fall. Is that right? September twenty-first. Yeah, correct. Fall solstice thing. Is that a thing? <laughs> what? Oh, come on! But fall is the best. It's the best. I mean, today it doesn't feel like summer, anyways. We're, we're it's fall, right? But for a lot of reasons, right? There's there's football, uh, which is awesome. It's so much fun to. I'm so glad they're playing. Oh man, it would be bad if there was no football on right now. Um, but for a lot of different things, I just love the fall. I like pumpkins. I like carving them. I don't necessarily like pumpkin spice lattes or something, but I do like pumpkins in general. John likes pumpkin spice lattes. You can see it in your eyes. Um, they are good. Uh, but I just love fall. And one of, the, one of my favorite things is just to change the season. I like the weather. I know everyone's like bundled up. And by the end of this, I will be drenched in sweat. So I enjoy the cooler weather. It makes me feel good uh, instead of just hot all the time. Uh, but I love seeing the leaves change. They haven't, they've kind of started to change and all that. If you know the Brian Regan, you know, bit, if you know Brian Regan, the comedian, right? But he, his line is like, isn't it lovely the way the leaves die uh, is always kind of this thing. And you can picture these leaves just, you know, screaming in pain as they're holding on for dear life. That's kind of his skit. But I just love, I love the leaves changing. I love the fall and how everything's about to change, right? I know we're not gonna get there, but winter is, is going to come uh, and, and will happen. And so maybe once I need to start shoveling out here is when we'll move inside, I don't know, which that could be next week. We don't really know. Uh, we, we don't really have an understanding on that, but everything's gonna start changing. And wouldn't you know, that's actually the title of this new series that we're kicking off is the gospel changes everything. So when we talk about the gospel, it's kind of one of those words that we use a lot within the church and within Christianity, and it's thrown around all the time, gospel, 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 what's it mean? And just kind of the, the etymology of the word, if you will, when we look at gospel, um, that it just comes from old English of God, G-O-D, and then spell, God spell, and just this God, the good news, right? That's kind of how we understand it. But what is the good news? What is actually the gospel? And there's a, a little book that was written, and I've mentioned this a lot of times before, but called What is the Gospel by a guy named Greg, Gil Greg Gilbert. Um, and he kind of breaks down the gospel into four uh, kind of chapters, if you will. And the first part of the gospel is God. That you have to have God. That if you immediately jump into, hey, you're a sinner and you're on your way to hell, that nobody wants to hear that. They don't, they don't even believe that. That doesn't mean anything to them. And we have to start with, there is a God. Uh, and that God then loves you, but he also demands perfection. And we've fallen short of that. So the second part of that is then man or humanity and that we're sinful and that we've fallen short of what God has asked us to do and to be and committed sin. And so we need help. We need, we need a savior and that is Jesus. That's kind of the third chapter is Jesus and the, the savior. And then finally, the last one is then um, uh, faith, that I need to put my faith, I need to put my trust in this savior. And so that's, that's the gospel, right? It's more than just those four words of God, man, Jesus, and faith. And yet, it's as simple as that, that I just have to put my faith. And so that's, that's what we mean by the gospel 
that that faith, that trust in the good news of Jesus Christ as the hope of the world changes everything. And so I'm gonna you know, spend our time looking at what that means specifically of the gospel changing everything. And so uh, Pastor Core, the, the lead pastor of downtown uh, campus, he kind of wrote a little blurb on this. And so right now, the all three campuses, we're gonna go through this 12-week series together um, and it's going to be a little bit more practical, a little bit more topical, if you will. We're not going to preach through a book, um, but I'm, uh, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging to me uh, that I'm going to call us to action as a church over these next couple of weeks. And so, uh, but Pastor Cor wrote this little blurb about what this um, series is going to be about. So let me just read what he said. He said, why have so many efforts to change our world proven ineffective or even destructive? What does it mean to be a faithful presence of Christ in this world? This series will explore how the church can play a role in affecting positive change. The gospel, rather than politics or worldly power or wealth or social media or reclusivism changes everything. That the gospel informs us on our politics and, and, and wealth and power and education and media. And we shouldn't just go, hey, let's just go build our own commune and get away from this crazy world. And No, the gospel affects us. The, the gospel moves us. The gospel of Jesus Christ forces us to take action, to have steps. And we just got done looking at Second Peter, but even First Peter, he, he kind of says the same thing twice, but that the world would see our good works and believe that we have to do something once we believe. And believing the gospel leaves no room at all for complacency or even comfort. And, and if you're new to Christianity, you're just checking this out, that might sound like, wow, he's saying, if I'm a Christian, that I might be uncomfortable. The gospel says yes. So this week's sermon is gonna be the creation mandate. Uh, is the title of this sermon. And we're going back to the beginning, going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse 28. And we're gonna be honing in on that, the creation mandate. Before I, I jump into that though, this last Tuesday, we had a all church elder meeting and we walked through Proverbs one. And it's just Proverbs, if you don't know anything about Proverbs, it's, it's, it's what it is, what it sounds like. They're, they're these sayings of, of wisdom and, and knowledge. And we kind of focused and honed in on Proverbs 122 for a little while. And it says this, how long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery? And even last week, looking at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, he used that same, that same language. How long will scoffers scoff? How long are we going to stay in our ways? And then the end of this verse says, and how long will fools hate knowledge? One thing I've always tried to teach myself and teach us as a church is do we write ourselves into the story as always the good person, as the hero of the story, or as the bad person, the, the villain, right, of the story? And I think when we look at this, it's easy maybe to think oh, all the people out there, they're the, they're the mockers, they're the scoffers, they're the fools. But church, I'm, I, what I want us to do is, is examine ourselves and say, is that me? Have I hated knowledge? Have I run away from things that make me uncomfortable? Have I run away from things that have been calls to action as a believer? So that's what we're gonna do. So if you're, if you're checking out Christianity, this is kind of a cool, a cool passage in the sense of at least what we're gonna be looking at, of looking at, okay, well, this is the gospel. This is just Christianity 101, if you will. But then in the same sense that we're gonna kind of walk through the whole Bible today and the story of redemption. 
And so we're gonna start in creation. We're gonna look at the fall, which is where we would say Adam and Eve and the first humans first sinned and sin and death entered into the world. We're gonna look at this rescue or redemption and then the final restoration when God makes all things new. And so that's where we're gonna be looking at today. And so we're gonna kind of take those four aspects, creation, fall, rescue, restoration, and we're gonna look at it through this lens of the creation mandate. That what was it that human beings were created to do and created for before sin was in the world? Do we have any inclination? Well, what we see is this perfect harmony. And we're gonna go through a lot of different, a couple different aspects of this beautiful harmony that we see in this creation mandate. But Genesis 1:28 says this, it says, God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And if you skip forward to Genesis 2:15, it says the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so what we see right here in the creation account is God saying human beings were created to work. And it's a good, th work is good. But what's going to happen is once sin enters the world, work all of a sudden is now going to change to toil and labor. That it's no longer going to be this good thing. It's something we have to do out of necessity. But everyone, every single one of you, no matter what job you have, in some way your job, your work has been labor, it's been toilsome, it's been hard. But that wasn't the case back then. That we were created to work, that work is actually a good thing that God gave humanity to do. I have a quote here from a, from a guy named uh, William Edgar, um, oddly enough, in an article called The Creation Mandate. Huh? Go, go figure. He says this about the creation mandate. He says, the mandate has three components, each of them related. First, and often least noticed, is given, given through and because of the blessing of God. So he's going to then quote Genesis 1.28, that God blesses them in this, this command, if you will. He says, because of the divine blessing, it's appropriate to call it a covenant, and its purpose is above all to fulfill mankind's relationship with God as it was originally intended. So we have human beings created and they have this original intent, right? The, the OGs of humanity. Uh, my mom and I were watching a show last night and there's a guy who couldn't stop saying OG. Um, but anyways, the OGs of humanity tells us our purpose, right? What was their goal in life? And this is, this is it. This is what it was supposed to be, this relationship with God. Second, the commandment is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The population was to increase, then fill the earth to discover its possibilities. And third, the mandate orders that mankind subdue the earth. The word for subduing is kibosh. I don't know, we said that every once in a while growing up, but maybe it's a phrase, that's a Hebrew word of kibosh. I'll put the kibosh on it, right? It's this Hebrew word. Did anybody use that idiom? Is that, do people still say that? Okay, right. Um, but what's interesting is that idea of kibosh, of subdue, it says it's not meant to be violent or gentle. Sorry. It's not meant to be violent, but gentle. Um, it's supposed to be a good thing, right, to subdue something in this sense, and especially creation and this world. He goes on, he says, it is perhaps coincidental that the three aspects of the mandate are reflected in our English word, inherited from medieval French for culture. So he's gonna take culture and kind of dissect it, if you will, into our understanding. And he says cult, when you think of a cult, this is what a cult means, referring to worship. Right, that, that part of our English language of 
culture is this idea of worship. But then he has the second word, colonization, which I don't normally picture that as a good thing, right? We think of the colonizer, right? Or, or going into all the world and saying, hey, I like your land, I'm taking it for myself. And we probably wouldn't attach, not meant to be violent, uh, but gentle to a, a colonizer. Um, and yet, that's what the language is of colonizing, of spreading, meaning to spread to other parts of the world is another, and then culture, means literally the cutting edge of the plow or whatever we ordinarily call cultivation. This is the creation mandate. This is the purpose of the human race, to worship, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. So that's what it was in the beginning. That's what it was before sin, but we don't stay there forever, right? Sin enters the world and, and bad things start to happen. And all of a sudden, all those perfect aspects of harmony between God and, and man and between man and woman and mankind and mankind and, and man himself and man in nature, all of a sudden there's going to be this huge rift that's going to rip that apart and we don't stay that way forever. And we know Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent and they eat of the fruit that God specifically told them not to eat and sin and death enter the world. And so now we're going to look at four different aspects of how the creation mandate is now changed because of sin and the curse. The first one is spiritually. So this is in uh, Genesis chapter three, starting in verse 14. This is the curse that God gives the serpent and then humanity in, in doing so. He says, so the, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all lives, livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15 right here, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It says, and I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. But then it switches to the singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we know the rest of the story that Satan's gonna crush the, or excuse me, Satan's gonna strike the heel of Jesus and cause some pain on the cross. But Jesus is the one who's gonna deal the final death blow to Satan. But what we see in this curse is spiritual warfare. That we as human beings are gonna have Enmity. We're going to be striving against demonic and satanic forces. There's also then this internal temptation, right, of, of numerous unlimited ways of temptation and sin that we're now going to have to combat because of sin and death in the world. The second uh, creation mandate after the fall is, that's affected is relationally. Verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe, and with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And I used to think that was just labor, like actually the, the act of, of giving birth, but it's not. It says right there in the beginning of 16, it says, I will make your pains in childbearing, childbearing very severe. I'm, I'm a man. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I'm married to a woman of 10 years, right? But she worries about things that I can't even begin to imagine, right? And she's always worried about that. Do I even want to have kids? Do I want to pursue my career? Can I do both? Uh, can I? Am I able physically to have kids? And now, now that I'm pregnant, am, am I doing everything right and okay to take care of my body? And then, and then actually the physical pain of having a child. And then afterwards of wanting to be a good mother. And then do we have more kids? And can I have more kids? Or should I have more kids? And all these things. And then those who, who can't have kids and just the, the pain of that, that as a man, we simply do not struggle with. That's part of the curse. I remember I kind of joked about it before, but I look back at that first 
account of Eve in the garden. And I just, and I said it before, but Eve, you had one job, right? Just don't eat the fruit. And I think of that every time my wife is in labor, <laughs> screaming. Uh, it's not, not fun. <laughs> she did a great job. But then he continues in verse 16. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Right here, there should be perfect harmony in this relationship. And every wedding I've done, I talk about this verse. Because what happens here is that your desire for your husband isn't a good desire. This is, I want to manipulate, I want to control. And when he's going to do the same thing, he's going to rule over you. And that's what every relationship, humanly, this side of the fall of sin entering this world, reverts to. And without the gospel of Jesus that changes everything, even my marriage and how I relate to my wife, no longer for my self-interest and gain, but setting my preference aside the same way that Christ did for his bride, for me and for the church, changes everything. The third aspect that we see that is affected is vocationally. It says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, in case I didn't make it clear before, I'm going to reiterate, you must not eat from it. Pretty simple here, Adam. A lot of times I think Eve gets the blame. That's not what happens. Adam is standing right there when this whole situation happens. He says, God says this to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful, here it is, toil, you will eat of the food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. And again, anyone here who's not in agriculture that's universal of any job, any labor of toil, and it takes work. And if anybody's ever tried to make a garden or anything, it's hard work. It's just constantly fighting back weeds. I mean, constantly, doesn't matter how much preen you put on it, it always comes back, always, always, always comes back. And then finally, the creation mandate after the fall that we see affected, this harmony now is gonna be in disharmony is theologically. And God is still continuing here talking with Adam and he says, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken and for dust you are and to dust you will return. That humanity, the pinnacle of God's creation was never created to die. We weren't supposed to die. And so that's why every time there's a death or a funeral or a murder, and it feels so wrong and it hurts so much is because it is so wrong. We weren't made for this. We weren't made to see one another pass on. It's part of the fall. So then how do we look at this idea of this creation mandate now and how does it impact this plan of redemption? So I've got a couple verses I just wanna read through quickly. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, And God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. That God in his wisdom said, I need to send myself, I need to send my son into this story who has no sin to take on the sin of those who don't deserve it. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Again, righteousness is just this amalgamation of rightness and justice jammed together, that we might become the righteousness of God. And again, that involves action. Second Peter 3.13, just read this last week and, and when we were going through the, the book, it says, but in keeping with this promise, 
that Jesus is going to return. That is the promise. There is going to be a judgment day. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, again, where righteousness dwells. But we're not there yet. What theologians call an already but not yet. Jesus has already forgiven me of my sin, but it's not perfect yet. We're looking forward to that day. So what do we do now? Well, we do what we what Jesus prayed to do in the Gospels, in the Lord's Prayer, that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And as his church, we now are called to make sure that that will is actually doing something and not just sit idly by. Romans chapter 12, 8 through 10 says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the coming debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands that there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of all the law. And we can sit and we can talk about love all day long, but we have to ask ourselves that question of what is, oh boy, what is love? Baby, don't hurt. Sorry, when my mind went there, I can't, I can't, I can't turn that filter off. What is love? Okay, what is it? What does it mean to love, though? What does it actually mean to love? Because what it doesn't mean is I just let them let, let people do whatever they want to do. I just take again. I'm a, I'm a dad, right? And I've got my three-year-old back there. And if Henry decided he wanted to go run into the street, even now, trust me, I'm running away from the microphone because I'm not gonna go tackle my own kid so he doesn't get himself killed. That's way more loving. That's not wrath, that's not injustice. That's love. And sometimes we are called to action that is actually hard to do and hard conversations that we need to have because of love. And again, what Peter says and what Jesus says that by our love that people will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. So what's the church's mandate? What do we actually do about it? What has changed from the creation mandate to now? Matthew 28, 16 through 20, it's what's often called the Great Commission. Verse 16 says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee into the mountains where Jesus told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all of it, all of the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what happens? He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do all these things. He says, now you, you therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's that subdue the earth. That's, excuse me, that's, that's going and spreading the good news of the gospel to all people and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, right? This is that culture of cultivating teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And and when we do those things, and those are actionable steps, it is an act of worship to our God. And Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A book that we're kind of reading through as pastors and elders right now is this uh, book. It's called uh, To Change the World. And it's by a gentleman by the name of James uh, Davison Hunter. I want to read just a a couple little quotes. These aren't lengthy by any means, but I think it will help us in where we're going from here and the whole impetus and reason behind why we're going through this series and the gospel changes everything. And again, he's talking about this creation mandate. He says this, as a rule though, indifference toward the world is quite rare in the history of God's people. Right, that as, as a church, we shouldn't just be indifferent to what's going on 
around us. We don't just say, well, I've got my Bible, I've got my Jesus, and, and that crazy world, they, they, can, they can go to hell in a handbasket. It's got, I've got nothing to do with them. We can't do that. He says the passion to engage the world, to shape it and finally change it for better, would seem to be an enduring mark of Christians on the world in which they live. To be Christian is to be obliged to engage the world, pursuing God's restorative purposes over all of life, individual and corporate, public and private. This is the mandate of creation. And he goes on to say, needless to say, the actual legacy of Christians in relation to this mandate is ambivalent to say the least. Now we just, we can go one way or the other. We can be kind of nonchalant when it comes to how we engage the world. He says, willful negligence of moral and spiritual obligations, the abuse of power, and, and me entering this especially within the church, and corruption through self-aggrandizement result in the exploitation of other human beings and the destruction of the resources of social and the natural environment. At the same time, there is a record of extraordinary good, of service to all and in honor of God. The ambivalence is what it is. There is much for Christians to be inspired by and much of which we should repent. So when I say the gospel changes everything, what do I mean? And this is something I've shared before. If you've come to Lower Town, you've heard me say this before, and if not, you're gonna hear it. And if you don't remember me saying it, I'm gonna say it again. And if you remember me saying it, I'm gonna say it again. And this is it. What is the gospel? Again, we talked about this, this is coming to faith in Christ, but so many times I think we take that gospel when we package it and we patent it and we, and we, slap, a, we slap, a, slap a sticker, that's what I'm trying to say. I talk for a living, by the way. And, and we send it out to people, right? And we say, hey, take, take this. This is, a, this is a tract that has the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to believe this. And then we can sit back and say, my job is done. I shared the good news of Jesus. Someone went from death to life. Someone went from darkness into light that their old flesh has gone away, they've been given this new flesh, I did my job. That's not what Jesus commanded us as a church in this new creation mandate. It's to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all of what Christ has commanded. So now it's this gospel door I walk through. I go from death to life, but I can't just stay there. There's a path, there's a gospel path that changes everything. It changes my finances, it changes the vehicles I drive up my gas guzzler. That's my baby. Don't, don't knock on that. It changes my marriage. That was a joke. It actually gets better mileage than you think. It changes everything. It changes my relationships. It changes my marriage. It changes my, my, my work ethic. It changes everything. But it also then should change how I view other people. It should change then how I interact with other people. It changes how I fight for justice. It changes how I look at racism. It changes everything. And again, I cannot stand idly by. I cannot do it. So there's kind of this, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a progression, if you will, in the life of a believer that this is, there's a gospel proclamation that they, we hear the gospel, we believe the gospel, which leads to gospel living, which then leads to commitment to this creation mandate which then leads to loving my neighbor, which then ultimately leads to human flourishing. We spent a lot of time looking at Jeremiah 29, especially when we first started this church. But Jeremiah 29, verse seven, it says that even though this church was in, excuse me, the Israelites are in exile, God's people were, were completely taken over and being controlled by a foreign government, the Babylonians, God says, 
hey, my people, I want you to seek the welfare and the prosperity of this city. And Lower Town, I'm telling you, we need to seek the welfare and the prosperity of the city and our neighborhoods. And not just dismiss all your wicked, I want nothing to do with you, but what can we do? If the gospel's changed me, how can we get the gospel to actually make an impact on what we do? How does the gospel impact my view of politics or policy or education or police reform or cancel culture? How do we fight against racism and poverty and greed and oppression and division? We do that through faith in the gospel that moves us, makes me move towards action. Is my faith, is my salvation dependent on my action? No. And yet, it should move us. Faith in the gospel and then the gospel-focused action steps. But what's awesome, again, I kind of talked about this already, not yet. The story doesn't end there. There's this restoration, this final aspect, the creation mandate fulfilled. There will be a day, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, I want to read verses one through five. It says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, this is apocalyptic, fantastical language to say it's all going to be made right. That just the, the leaves, right? I want some of those leaves to heal the nations. And then he says right here, no longer will there be any curse. It's going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. No curse, perfect harmony between mankind and other mankind, between humans and humans, man and woman, and other ethnicities and races. Perfect harmony. There will no longer be enmity between us and ourselves and our spirituality. We will be able to, that one with God, no longer any temptation or sin, no longer any curse. And we will see God and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night and they will not need the lamp or the, or the light of a lamp uh, or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. But we're not there yet. So yes, while we look forward to that and we believe in that and we hope in that as we just got done looking at 2 Peter, I look forward to that day and yet I want God's will to be done here now on this earth as it is in heaven is that it will be in that day. And so what is it that we can do? So in gospel application, I just have one thing, one thing for us today that I want us to be able to, as a church, agree on that in Christ, will you take the creation mandate as your manifesto for living? Will we proclaim the gospel? Will we live this way? It says we want to seek the flourishing of people and we do that by loving them the way that I would want to be loved and the way that I am loved by Christ. And then we will see the prosperity of our city and of people that we care about. One practical way, and I want to just kind of make a, a general announcement. I know a lot of you know about our podcast, and this is not a, I'm not, I'm not doing this for hits, okay? I need you to understand that. I'm simply doing this because we're in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> okay? And so uh, Paul and Josh and I, our, our elders, that we wanted to actually, be, even before COVID, uh, before the murder of George Floyd, uh, have like an ed hour or a Sunday school class or something to specifically focus on racism. 
And just because of just where we're at, it's just a little, little lot harder to do that. Well, we started doing this in our, in our podcast. And so tonight, um, I'm not sure exactly what time, Andrew, but later tonight, tomorrow morning, the first episode of our racial solidarity uh, will be available. And I, I'm, I'm so thankful for Josh and Paul. Um, they have helped me so much uh, with my understanding. And I know we're just beginning to scratch the surface when it comes to racial solidarity. I didn't even know what that meant two weeks ago. And so I'm just so thankful for them um, that I know my theology, right? I can I could get up here and I can preach about why racism is bad and why the gospel is the answer to racism, but there's a lot more. And so I'm thankful for those men. And so again, the podcast is called Sunday Rewind. I'm not gonna say it's a required listening, but it's pretty close, okay? So just listen to it, because I'm telling you, it's helpful. It's helpful for me, it's helpful for all of us. And again, the call to action, the call to action, at some point, we're gonna actually have some real tangible things. And I think we're all wanting to do that. We want something tangible that we can do with our hands to show our community and other people that we love them and we're here for them. And we're gonna do that. But I think at first, we just need to become a little bit more aware of what's going on to try to put ourselves as best we can in the shoes of somebody who understands what it's like to be the victim of racism. So that again will be available tonight. Let me go ahead and pray. We'll close and we'll have communion uh, together. And then we will sing a few more songs in worship together uh, before we're dismissed. So let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, again, I thank you, for, thank you for our scriptures. I thank you for the story of redemption. I thank you that we can go from Genesis to Revelation, that we can go uh, very quickly through a lot of books that were written thousands of years apart and yet say the same thing. 66 different books of the Bible written by 40 plus different individuals spanning thousands of years and every single page of these sacred texts just scream, Jesus is the answer. So God, would you help us, those who believe to be called to do something? And would you help those of us who don't believe to believe? Would you give us that faith to believe in the gospel that is so freeing and so life-giving? And so now as we partake of these elements, these elements that, that your son instituted for the church to take 2,000 years ago, would you now receive the honor and glory and power because you are worthy to be praised, you are worthy of honor, you are worthy of glory. And the only reason why I can approach the holy God of the universe is because of the finished work of your son on the cross for my sin, that I am forgiven. And spirit, would you now intercede on my behalf would you hear us? And Spirit, would you empower us now to not sit idly by, to convict where conviction is needed, to repent individually, corporately, as a church? What can we do? God, lead us, guide us, direct us. Give us wisdom now in these times. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.